Welcome to the 5x Growth Podcast, where your host, Carl, brings you the best insights and takeaways from the books I read on startups, entrepreneurship, marketing, and sales. Get ready to level up and accelerate your personal and professional growth with every episode. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Today we're going to continue our book, Why Startups Fail, a new roadmap for uh, entrepreneurs, and we're moving on to chapter three, Good Idea, Bad, Bad Fellows. In May 2011, when two of my former students came to me for feedback on their idea for a startup, I was intrigued. Alexander Nelson and Christina Wallace had a promising concept. They wanted to produce affordable, stylish, and better-fitting work apparel for young professional women. The pair devised a textbook-perfect MVP. They held six trunk shows where women would try on sample outfits and place pre-orders. The response was promising. 50% of the young professional women who attended made purchases averaging $350. This seemed the perfect outsider-insider pairing, with one founder's temperament and skills being well-suited for leading external efforts like fundraising, branding, partnerships, etc., while the others made her a natural for managing internal activities including website development, warehouse operations, and customer service. Nelson and Wallace came up with financial projections that showed Quincy earning $52 million in revenue and $18 million in pre-tax profit within four years. They then shared these projections with potential investors and raised $950,000 in seed capital less than their 1.5 million target, but enough to launch spring and fall collections. Initial sales were strong, as were repeat purchases. 39% of spring collection customers subsequently bought items from the fall collection. However, things soon began to unravel. It turned out that the strong growth required heavy investment in inventory, which depleted cash reserves. Meanwhile, production problems caused garments to fit poorly on some customers. They had been in business just nine months, and at the rate Wallace and Nelson were spending, Quincy, the company, would run out of cash in just two more months. Wallace kicked into high gear and vowed to raise more capital, but after returning from investor meetings empty-handed, she saw the writing on the wall. Unless existing investors extended the loan, Quincy would have no hold operations, would have to hold operations. The ultimate demise of Quincy, apparel kept me at night because on the surface it shouldn't have happened. Their early trunks show tests 
an impeccable application of lean startup methods had demonstrated clear demand for their novel solution. And the market reconfirmed this demand after Quincy launched in March 2012. By November, monthly sales had reached 62,000 up from 42,000 the prior month. So if Quincy's founders had identified a product that their target consumers clearly wanted, why did they stumble? Was it better fit promise too ambitious, too ambitious for founders who hadn't mastered the complexities of apparel production? Did the founders raise too little venture capital? Did they pick the wrong investors? Did weak leadership sink the ship? Was there co-founder conflict? As I dug deeper, I found the root of the problem. Quincy hadn't assembled the resources required to capitalize on its promising opportunity. As a result, it fell victim to the early-stage startup failure pattern I call good idea, bad, bad fellows. In this context, resources doesn't refer simply to capital. We see the good idea, bad, bad fellows pattern play out when a startup with a promising opportunity falters due to deficiencies and dysfunctions among a range of key resource providers, including its founders, other team members, investors, and strategic partners. In Quincy's case, three of the four opportunity elements were in place, at least initially. As a positive response to trunk show trials, early sales growth, and repeat purchase rates all made clear, Quincy's customer value proposition addressed a strong unmet need in a different, in a differentiated manner. Likewise, Quincy's, problem, Quincy's problems did not stem from flawed marketing. The startup relied principally on word of mouth from happy customers. Basically, customers get customers incentives. Uh, social media promotion and press coverage. These marketing tactics worked as intended and attracted plenty of customers. During its first year after launch, Quincy's profit formula was still unproven, but it was not patently unsound. Admittedly, the startup was rapidly burning through its capital reserves to produce the inventory needed to meet growing demand, and Quincy's gross margin was substantially lower than their target because customers were returning their purchases at a higher than expected rate. Yet despite this early miscalculations, the venture still had the potential to achieve long-term profitability. Quincy did have major problems with the force opportunity element. Uh, and the force opportunity element is technology and operations. That's their main, that, that was their major problem. The, star, the startup had an attractive value proposition but it couldn't deliver the promised value consistently. Especially, Quincy had troubles ensuring good fit, the crucial component in its promise to customers. 
the result was a return rate 50% higher than the founders had anticipated, with 68% of all return purchases cutting poor fit. So, unfortunately, as my postmortem revealed, Quincy had problems across all four elements of the resource square. And the resource square, square contains founders, other team members, investors, and strategic partners. These bad, fellow, bad fellows turned out to be the source of Quincy's operational problems and ultimately its failure. Let's talk about the founders. So Quincy's founders brought a version of hacker-hustler balance to the venture. Notwithstanding these strengths, the co-founders had two key weaknesses. They lacked apparel industry experience and they failed to clarify who's the boss. Quincy's founders had no prior hands-on experience with designing and manufacturing garments. Learning by doing also resulted in quality problems, such as not knowing that nearly identical fa fabrics could have different elastics which affected fit. Founders' lack of industry experience is often at the core of the good idea, bad, bad fellows failure pattern. Promising idea will get only so far if those running the show lack the knowledge and experience to execute it. Furthermore, the maxim, uh, the maxim ideas are cheaper, are cheap, but ex execution is dear, is especially true in sectors with greater operational complexity, causing founders who lack industry experience to struggle mightily. Quincy's operations were very complex. A range of activities, design, fabric procurement, pattern making, garment production, quality control, and shipping, among others, had to be closely coordinated. Founders who lack prior industry experience will also have more trouble attracting talent because they lack a professional network filled with promising candidates. And investors will be wary of a founding team that doesn't know where the landmines are buried. So what can founders like Quincy's to do? What can founders like Quincy's do to address such shortcomings? First, they can try to recruit another more experienced co-founder or seasoned senior manager, but they'll likely run into a catch-22. Nelson and Wallace tried to recruit a co-founder who knew ins and outs of apparel product, but they were unsuccessful. It's easy to see why. Someone qualified to lead the design and production operations and apparel startup is bound to have many, many attractive job opportunities, including founder roles with other promising new ventures. If they had more attractive options, would such candidates cast their lot with two MBAs who have a good idea but no relevant track record and only enough capital to provide one year's worth of runway? 
there is enough cash to keep operations for one year, giving the projected revenue and costs. Second, they can lean heavily on advisors to provide guidance on strategy and operations, and ideally also leverage the advisor's network connections to attract experienced managers. Yeah, so the first one is tricky, right? If you try to get a seasoned co-founder who has the industry experience, most likely he will not be kind of interested in those kind of opportunities with a small startup, with people who have just an idea. And yes, they got a capital, but it's basically for one year. So, and the second point, yeah, maybe get some advisors who have relevant industry experience. So yeah, I guess uh, very interesting points. And now let's move on. Again, Quincy's founders did have a few useful advisors, but they might have searched for more. They assumed that their lead investors brought fashion tech experience and contacts to the table, but were ultimately disappointed with the help they got from their VCs. Finally, they can invest more time and effort into acquiring some specific industry knowledge themselves while being aware that mastery can take years. Finally, they can invest more time and effort into acquiring some specific industry knowledge themselves uh, while being aware that mastery can take years. It would certainly take that long for Quincy's founders to master the process of designing and manufacturing apparel. But if they'd spent more time researching the challenges of garment manufacturing and inventory management before launching, they might at least have learned enough to target their recruiting efforts more precisely. In retrospect, she realized that they should have continued to evaluate their concept while still employed full-time. I could rely on my husband's income, she said, but the minute that Christina quit her job, we needed to fund the business, and that put a lot of pressure on us. However, this slower approach may not be a viable option for entrepreneurs who suspect they have only a narrow window of opportunity perhaps because another startup may soon spot the same idea. Now let's talk about who's the boss. In addition to lacking industry experience, Nelson and Wallace face significant challenges in manufacturing their own, in managing their own relationship. According to analysis by Noam Wasserman, Dean of Yeshiva University's Business School, Co-founder relationships are less stable, that is, more likely to end in breakup. When co-founders are family members or were close friends prior to launching a venture, there are many tempting reasons to start a business with your close friend or family member. For example, you share similar goals and values and already know each other's strengths, weaknesses, habits, and quirks. Colleagues or strangers... Co-founders with close personal bounds find it more difficult to have tough conversations about roles and strategies. They're afraid that 
ensuing conflict might jeopardize their personal relationship. Wallace and Nelson from the outset elected to share strategic decision-making authority equally. On the surface, this strategy seemed a logical way to avoid co-founder strife, but it turned out to do the opposite. The co-founders, both headstrong, clashed over product strategy and design, choices among other issues. The potential for conflict was amplified by asymmetry in what the founders had at stake with the venture. Nelson had more to lose. Her mother was the company's first investor and her brother works there as a software engineer. Wallace noted, when your family also has skin in the game, the stakes and risks can't feel like they are shared 50-50. But if two founders aspire to this CEO job and both viewed themselves as qualified, deferring the decision for too long can have deadly consequences. As Quincy's experience shows, tension will build and squabbles over strategic directions may slow down the startup just when it needs to be at its most nimble. In this situation, co-founders have three options. Internal, the co-founder can agree upon a date by which they will have to come to an agreement, perhaps after a trial period, during which they alternate as CEO to see who is better suited. The second one, external. The co-founders can delegate the decision to a neutral third party and agree to abide by that individual's choice. Draconian. It's the third option. One co-founder recognizing he will never be satisfied with a subordinate role can leave. Not a great option, but sometimes it's Hobson's choice, the only available after exploring and rejecting all other alternatives, and thus best for all concerned. My survey of early stage startups revealed that issues with founders' fit, like those described above, can contribute to startup mortality, especially compared to their counterparts in more successful ventures. The founders slash CEOs of struggling startups or those that shut down had significantly less prior work experience in the industry in which their startup operated. And consistent with Quincy's experience, co-founders were much more likely to report they lacked clarity over their roles, along with frequent conflict among themselves and with other senior team members. Now let's move on to the team uh, before we've discussed founders and then um, now we're moving on to the team. For, for Quincy's small team comprised largely of apparel industry specialists, a lack of flexibility and initiative contributed significantly to the venture's demise. Lack of flexibility assumes that their first few employees, by virtue of being experienced, would be able to fill multiple functions as needed. A reasonable assumption, given that employees in more 
in most early stage startups are jacks of all trades. However, the industry veterans whom Quincy hired were accustomed to the high levels of specialization found in established apparel companies. As a result, they weren't flexible when asked to tackle tasks outside their area of expertise. It turns out Quincy had hired individuals who were more comfortable working within a familiar, well-defined process, not with inventing a process from scratch or with taking on multiple roles. And also, they had a lack of initiative. Quincy's industry veterans did not show the initiative required to make a startup successful. In addition to their not-my-job attitude, these employees were reluctant to speak up when their industry know-how should have clued them into potential problems. For example, no one sounded the alarm that fabric used for the jacket lining was likely to bleed pink. These missteps suggest that the employees were first following norms learned in established apparel companies that had smoothly functioning production processes and where they rarely needed to challenge management decisions. And or second, did not feel motivated enough to ask questions when something seemed awry. Either possibility points to problems with the approaches the founders used to hire, supervise, and motivate the employees. In retrospect, Wallace acknowledged her own failure to address her employees' lack of initiative. She said, I didn't push the team hard enough. Alex became the bad, the bad cop, demanding results. I tried to calm things down after she came down hard on someone. But Alex's authority was undermined once employees learned that they could complain to me. Wallace added, We hired some people who seemed to think that they were doing us a favor by working for an underfunded startup. We did not find enough people who thought this was the best opportunity of their lives. A way to get in on the ground floor of the next big thing. As a result, I managed in a way that said, Thank you so much for doing us this favor. Instead of hiring employees who had relevant skills but lacked flexibility and initiative, Quincy should have sought out a seasoned senior manager with experience in both apparel production and with new ventures. Granted, easier said than done, this manager would would then have been able to recruit specialists with both the necessary skills and, and flexibility to adapt to startup rhythms. Without such a person on the team, Quincy's founders faced a challenge familiar to many entrepreneurs. How do you hire the right specialists when you don't know much about their functions and you don't have a professional network reach with candidates? The solution to finding employees with the right balance of specialized skill and can-do attitude is threefold. So let's talk about the solutions and possible solutions. Step one is finding someone with relevant industry experience who can first 
leverage their network contacts to fill your recruiting pipeline with skilled candidates. And second, help you with interviews to assess candidate skills. Given the challenge of bringing such a person on board as an employee, he could also be an investor or an advisor. Any equity grant should vest over time and both parties, advisor and startup, should be free to terminate the agreement at will. Step two is interviewing for attitude. A founder can and should probe candidates' past accomplishments to determine whether they have experience solving novel problems and taking initiative. Likewise, interviews should interviews should explore candidates' motivations for considering a job in a nascent company. Are they seeking new challenges and professional growth? Are they attracted to the startup's mission? How well do they understand work patterns in an early-stage startup? Those are the questions that you need to ask. And step three, whenever possible, is giving candidate a tryout before committing to hiring them full-time. Hand them a project of modest proportions to complete in a specific period of time, one that requires working with current employees, with an understanding that the candidate and the founder will gorge mutual fit upon the project's completion. So now we've discussed the team, we've discussed the founders, and we're moving on to investors. Quincy's founders had initially planned to raise 1.5 million in venture capital, but managed to secure only 950 in seed funding. As a result, at the time of of launch, the startup had less than 12 months of runway, instead of the 18 months that seed stage ventures typically targeted. This shortfall left less room for mistakes. If Quincy's founders had met their original fundraising goal, they could have produced enough inventory for a third collection, not just the two, and might have had enough time to shake out production bugs before running out of funds. One way to interpret what happened in that Catch-22 at work again, uh, one way to interpret what happened is that Catch-22 at work again. In that Potential investors, while impressed with the founder's idea and the evidence for demand supplied by by their early MVP tests, were still skeptical of the founder's ability to execute due to their lack of industry experience. Another possibility is that technology VCs saw Quincy as an apparel manufacturer, a category they usually avoid. Technology VCs hope for a 10x return from any given investment, but they expected only a small percentage of the companies in their portfolio to earn such returns. By contrast, private equity investors in the fashion-slash-retail sector seek only a 2x to 4x return, but they they expect a larger percentage of their investment to yield a set a solid payoff down the line. Thus, they're more patient and less inclined to withhold additional funds from startups that stumble. 
To attract new venture capital, Nelson and Wallace positioned Quincy as a disruptive online innovator, a tech startup employing the direct-to-consumer model in the apparel space, akin to Warby, Parker, and Bonobos, both of which had attracted significant funding from the technology VCs. Yet, it might have been a mistake for Quincy's founders to take money from technology VC. For one, these investors didn't contribute much in the way of strategic counsel or recruiting or recruiting contracts. In addition, funding from Quincy's lead investors came with strings attached. The capital was doled out every quarter in chunks called trenches but only if Quincy met specified milestones of sales growth. Tranching is an uncommon but not unheard of practice for seed stage VC investment. It allows VCs to limit their exposure if a startup goes off the rails, but it can also exert undue pressure on the venture. While Quincy didn't meet its investors' targets, Nelson explained, we felt like we had to continue sell our investors on Quincy, which made it difficult to be candid about strategic and operational challenges. The investors never seemed like true partners. Finally, Quincy's lead investors were small and relatively new VC firms that were constrained in their ability to provide bridge financing when the startup began struggling. So how do founders founders find the most appropriate investors, you might ask? Before they commit, they should ask two important questions. First, just as founders' fit is crucial, having founders with the right skills and industry experience given the opportunity at hand so is funder fit. Funder fit. Will the investors add value in the form of skills and experience beyond the capital they contribute? Second, are their risk-reward preferences consistent with those of the founders? Go- gauging funder fit requires a review of the investment of of the investing firm's track record. Do they have a good hit rate? If they do, they'll have credibility and relationships that will help with attracting investors to the next fundraising round after this one. Do entrepreneurs who worked with them say that they offered good advice and contracts Do founders, especially founders of failed ventures, say that their investors were supportive and that they'd worked with them again? Finally, does the firm have enough capital in its current fund to provide bridge financing if it required? Many aspiring entrepreneurs fail to consider the full range of financing alternatives available to them. The pressure that comes with venture capital is not well suited for all businesses, nor is this risk-return profile suited for all entrepreneurs' temperaments. 
Looking back, Wallace concluded that instead of raising funds from VC firms, Quincy could have sought financial backing from a closing factory that would have solved two problems, a factory with an equally a factory with an equity stake in Quincy would have ex- expedited orders and worked harder to correct production problems. And factory owners with deep industry experience would have known how to set an optimal pace for the growth of a new apparel line. In contrast to Quincy's VCs who pressured the founders to grow at full tilt. Whether to persist, as Quincy did, if initial fundraising stalls far short of the founders' goals is a tricky issue. If investors decline to back the startup, is it that they perceive problems with the idea, the team, or both? Fundraising signals can be noisy. Investors' hurt behavior often means that no no one invests until someone else invests. Thus, no one invests. When Quincy founders raised much less seed capital they had originally targeted, they faced a difficult choice. Prior to May 2012, they'd realized 250 from angels, friends, and family. Most of that had been spent or committed to the production of the first closing collection. That May, they secured commitments from two VC firms for another 700. This was enough to last through year-end, funding the design, production, and marketing of a second collection. But that was it, having failed to raise enough money to fund the third collection. Should they have pulled the plug rather than taking the new VC money? Proceeding with less meant gambling that a year-end they'd have enough traction to raise more substantial funds. But it also meant the venture had no no room for strategic or operational errors. However, pulling the plug would require them to inform their early backers that their investment wouldn't deliver returns. Even worse, they'd have to admit they lacked the confidence to proceed, even though an additional 700 was available. It's not hard to understand why Quincy's founders chose to gamble. The startups I surveyed that were struggling or shut down were more likely than than their successful counterparts to have missed their targets in their initial round of fundraising. Likewise, the founders-slash-CEOs of the struggling startups were more likely to have been disappointed with the quality of advice they received from their investors and more likely to report frequent, serious, and divisive conflict with investors over strategic priorities. So, yeah, and now let's move on to partners. We've discussed founders, team, investors, and now moving on to the partners. Finding the right strategic partner can have a major impact on an early-stage startup's performance. Partners can lend their resources, 
key technologies, manufacturing capacity, warehouses, call centers, and so forth. To a new venture, the lag, the lags, the where weasel and and or time to develop such resources in-house. However, the asymmetry in bar bargaining power between a big ma mature resource-rich company and a fledged line startup can make it difficult to secure the right resources on reasonable terms. In retrospect, it shouldn't have been a surprise that a startup with no reputation unusual sizing requirements and small orders would encounter indifferent service from apparel factories. Quincy struggled to get good service from its factory partners highlights a risk and endemic to early stage startups when they partner with established players. It's easy for a mouse to get trampled by an elephant. Even an elephant with good intentions may be clumsy and too slow moving to avoid squashing the mouse. Unfortunately, there is not much that an early startup can do to ensure that a larger partner fulfills its commitments. Threatening lawsuits for breach of contract isn't realistic. The startup's managers are too busy to manage a protracted legal battle and in any case spending scarce cash on legal services would be unwise. Nevertheless, an entrepreneur may have a few points of leverage over this partner and shouldn't hesitate to use them. For example, a founder with a big social media platform might have the megaphone to warn the larger partner about the negative consequences to its reputation if other customers read about the startup's bad experience. Similarly, the startup's investors and advisors may be positioned to lean on the partner. To level the bargaining playing field, founders might choose to work with a partner that is hungry for more business, perhaps because it's not yet well established or has recently suffered setbacks. Of course, there is risk with this approach. Does the partner need more business because it lacks key capabilities? Maybe a history of failing to deliver? In this case, the best course is to conduct careful due diligence on potential partners at the outset by speaking to current customers with a similar mousy profile to find out if their patterns if their partners honored their commitments. Another option is for the founders to give a business partner equity in their startup so that both sides have a stake in its success. Of course, that option means more delusion of equity stake and a messier divorce if the partnership falls apart. Starting small, Quincy's founders identified a promising opportunity but they failed to attract the resources required to capture it. The missing resources included another co-founder with industry experience, a more committed team, more helpful investors, and more cooperative strategic partners. 
Unfortunately, the nature of the opportunity Quincy pursued amplified the challenges involved in mobilizing resources. As we've seen, the design and manufacturing of apparel is a complex process that requires tight coordination among many specialized functions. This type of process puts a premium on the industry experience that the founders sorely lacked. In addition, the complexity posed another problem. There is no way to run a lean experiment to prove it. To prove in advance that a planned production process will work, you must fully develop the process and then run it in order to demonstrate its effectiveness. Producing apparel in same in sample quantities, which Quincy founders did successfully after their trunk show tests, is a completely different ball game compared to manufacturing it in volume. So while Nelson and Wallace could provide potential employees and investors with some assurance that trunk show tests had validated demand, there was no way to offer evidence in advance that the founders could manage operations. Resource providers would have to take a leap of faith. Another compounding challenge that, that before Quincy made any sales, the startup had to build lots of inventory because its sizing scheme required more stock keeping units for each style than a traditional apparel manufacturer would produce. The venture needed sufficient inventory to support growth, but that required considerable capital. Inventory buildup carries an additional risk common to all apparel businesses. They have to forecast fashion trends and any mistakes meant that they'd be left holding inventories that could only be liquidated at a deep discount, if at all. Finally, apparel like Quincy's is solid is sold in seasonal collections. Because of the timing, the startup's capital requires requirements were not only large but also lumpy. To offer a new closing collection, the founders needed enough cash on hand to fund inventory production along with many months of design work. So, startups are more likely to be vulnerable to the good idea, bad, bad fellows failure pattern when they pursue opportunities that involve, first, complex operations requiring the tight coordination of different specialist work. Second, inventory of physical goods. And third, large, lumpy capital requirements. By contrast, consider the more modest management demands on a purely software-based startup like Twitter when it launched. A small team of engineers created the site and it spread virally without a paid marketing push. Capital requirements were modest and there was no physical inventory to manage. As Twitter grew, it eventually added an array of specialists to manage various functions. For example, community relations, server infrastructure, copyright compliance, etc. But it didn't need these specialists at the outset. What can founders who confront the risk of bad bad fellows do to improve their odds of success? 
In hindsight, Quincy's founders saw many could have should have possibilities. They fall into two big categories bolstering resources and constraining opportunity. Founders who fear that they may not be able to amass the resources required to pursue an attractive opportunity should also consider ways to constrain that opportunity. They can do this by reducing the scope of their effort, at least initially, until proof of concept is established and it becomes easier to mobilize resources. This approach is somewhat counterintuitive because startup dogma holds that growth is the prime goal for a new venture. Instead, with this constrained, contrarian approach, a startup should start small in order to get big. When the capabilities of a founder and his team are limited, when partner support is erratic and when funding is short in short supply, constraining the initial opportunity may make sense. For example, an early stage startup may be able to constrain its scope by limiting the breadth of its product line, by outsourcing difficult to make activities, or by focusing on a single customer segment or a specific geographic area. A word of warning. Entrepreneurs who are considering whether to limit the scope of the opportunity they pursue need to weight the attendant risks against the benefits. First, narrower scope may make their offering less appealing to customers. Second, unless potential investors are confident that the venture can eventually expand in scope, they may be reluctant to fund a start slower, start smaller plan, projecting that the payoff from the venture will be too small. Finally, by limiting scope, the startup team risks deferring the learning by doing that will eventually be necessary to manage more complex operations. Because the venture will be bigger in the future, any errors that the team makes when they eventually expand the product line or bring outsourced activities in-house will be more costly. That's all for today's episode of the 5X Growth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and leave us a rating and a review. For show notes and more, visit our website at 5xgrowth.com. Until next time, stay focused and keep growing.